You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's world headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. We're back, Caro. This is Bloomberg Technology. And guess what? We're still talking about it. Coming up, NVIDIA hitting $1 trillion. It's the ninth company to ever reach the valuation. We're going to bring you all things AI throughout the show. And despite the AI rally, industry leaders warning the technology poses the risk of extinction. We'll discuss a letter out from the heads of OpenAI, Google DeepMind, Anthropic and others calling for caution. Plus, Elon Musk touches down in Beijing. We'll bring you the latest of his visit as the Tesla CEO emphasizes the importance of ties with China. And let's get a global look on these markets right now, because actually the Chinese economy is actually still a key caution, a concern for many. And that is why we're seeing the Golden Dragon. That's, of course, the Nasdaq Golden Dragon Index just off by more than 3%. Look, the Nasdaq is your outperformer today. The technology sector is your outperformer. Is actually the rest of the world is still worrying about recession risks, still worried about inflation. So we see the Nasdaq up six tenths of percent, but not the other key U.S. benchmarks on the day, Ed. We're seeing, though, a big rally in the U.S. debt market. Ten-year, we see yields coming down some nine, ten basis points. The reason. Well, debt deal relief, yet to seal the deal, but certainly some sort of an agreement coming from across the aisles. We'll see whether that manages to push through and we avoid default here in the United States. That really affected the crypto market. Just take a look at where we were earlier in terms of Bitcoin. We managed to rally. It was the highest in a couple of months, actually, but we've now dipped back down. We're currently trading flat on the day. 27,672 is where we trade. But Ed, like, dive into the micro, because this is a day for micro in tech. A lot happening in the news flow, a lot around AI, but start with Tesla up. Pretty much at its highest level in around two months, 4%. Elon Musk is in China. In a statement issued by the Chinese government, Elon Musk is quoted as saying Tesla against the decoupling with China and will continue to invest and grow its business in that market. The narrative around that boosting shares. Broadcom, a really interesting move to the upside, up 4.7%. A couple of names out on the sell side, boosting their price targets, upgrading the stock because they see it as a beneficiary in the AI hype cycle that's playing out right now in NVIDIA. Let's talk about NVIDIA. The stock absolutely soaring up 5.7% as well. $1 trillion 
market cap. The first chip maker or semiconductor name to reach a trillion dollars in market value. The ninth stock ever to do so. It joins that exclusive club alongside Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, the parent of Google, and Microsoft. 1.021 trillion as it stands. We'll see if we can maintain the current gains on the stock carrier as we head towards the close. But it's a really big moment for this company founded here on the West Coast, 1993. Jensen Huang, the founder, CEO, has been out in Taiwan for the last 48 hours or so speaking often and really driving momentum around those shares. I want to bring in Bloomberg's Ian King and talk more about NVIDIA because we actually got product announcements as well, right, Ian? What have we learned about NVIDIA's latest offering in the field of AI? Well, are you ready for the list? We've got a, a super chip, a supercomputer, I think at least two new data centers, uh, networking for AI to speed things up in the data center. I mean, a number of tie-ups. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on in terms of what they uh, announced this weekend and over the last few days. I mean, he said it himself, didn't he? It's too much. I know it's too much. But his sense of urgency, this run, don't walk mentality, is it only something an NVIDIA, a founder-led business, could do in the chip market? Are we seeing other announcements coming from other players in this respect? I mean, we're seeing plenty of announcements, we're seeing plenty of roadmaps, but nothing like the intensity that's being shown by this company. I mean, let's face it, we're at the beginning stages. If you believe NVIDIA, we're at the beginning stages, and there are a lot of problems, a lot of technical issues, a lot of fundamental design issues that need to be solved in order for this to move forward. The company that's addressing these, the company that's that's actually saying, hey, look, this is what we're going to do, that's NVIDIA right now. I mean, NVIDIA, where it's at, it feels like, Ed, but actually, when I turned on my terminal, everything was coming out of Taipei over the course of the weekend. You saw Qualcomm trying to be in on the game. You saw so many other announcements pouring from this really important meetup that seems to be happening. Yeah, he, you know, Jensen Huang clearly taking advantage of a gathering of minds. You know, he's kind of this rock star figure now, leather jacket clad with his specs on stage. David, remember, bringing, remember you know, his tattoo, the NVIDIA tattoo? With the NVIDIA tattoo on the shoulder. But like, how much has this story changed, right? The, the days of Elon Musk being the rock star technology executive in are over. Jensen Huang, I, I believe he was born in, in Taiwan. He was educated here on the West Coast. He's kind of really central to the story and his own wealth is really ballooned, right? Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he left Taiwan when he was four years old. He founded this company. He still runs it. And, and as Caroline said, this is, it's, it's, it's him, right? He still runs it day to day. Everything revolves around him. And, and that's really, you know, a company that, that lives or dies in terms of the direction that their CEO gives him. News flow also from global, not just chips makers, but chip designers in. Get us up to speed as to who took some of the other oxygen, the tiny bit that was left outside of Jensen. I mean, Arm were trying to make some announcements as well. Yeah, Arm was was mobile related. Uh, Qualcomm was talking about, you know, mobile related. One of the things that Qualcomm is saying is like, look, you can't do this all over wireless, over the internet because data centers are too far away. If you want that instant response, if you want your chat GPT to actually tell you something meaningful in a meaningful amount of time when you're on the run, you need a phone that's capable of doing this. So there's a, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of opportunities if you believe the hype. <laughs> Let's dig into the hype next. Ian King, we thank you so much for giving us a healthy dose of what is reality and what isn't. Let's 
look, look at the ultimate opportunity here with Zeno Mercer. He's research analyst over at Vetify Robo Global Indices. $3.4 billion in assets under management. Someone who's been quoted, been thinking of for decades in the world of AI and its applications and its investability, Zeno. I'm interested in your perspective as to whether really NVIDIA is the picks, the shovels you want to be in it. They were it for crypto. They've been it for gaming. Is NVIDIA the really place to be when you want to be in at ground level for AI? No, it's, a, it's a great question, and thanks for having me on. Um, I mean, on one hand, of course, NVIDIA has the picks and shovels, and they're not just picks and shovels. They're actually generating applications that are being used uh, both enterprise currently and increasingly B2B. So they're not just chips anymore, which is kind of making their own self-fulfilling virtuous super cycle for themselves. Yeah. Uh, however, no, yeah, we can pause. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just dig into the supercomputer element of all of this and all, what else they're trying to be. Yeah, so they're getting into, you know, they've got their omniverse where they're actually trying to simulate reality there across different, uh, you know, so that can be used for manufacturing, that can be used for proteins, uh, and just generally helping simulate physics, or at least empowering other companies to do that, uh, which is uh, very fundamental to improving any type of product design, designing cities, kind of any type of motion or physical interaction in the real world. It's not just this digital backend and, and language that people are, are excited about there's other ecosystems that that they're going to be empowering alongside uh, other players in the ecosystem both infrastructure and um you know companies that specialize in those areas uh, you know such as physics design etc just what's fascinating amid all of this of course ed is yes there's yeah. real application there's real tangible need you and i playing with it on a daily basis but you can't get away from the fact that what Zeno, you're saying this is a 600 billion dollar overall market ed We've now got a $1 trillion company on the back yes. of this. It feels like yeah, it's, it's a valuation question, right? Zeno, you know, the whole point of RoboGlobal is to give investors through different index and research uh, some exposure to developments in AI. But this is a stock trading at around 200 times forward earnings. Right. No, that's a good point. I mean, it's definitely run pretty far ahead of what it had been trading at. And if you think about what's happened over even the last year, you had uh, a chip shortage uh, with the supply chain. You had the Chips Act passed. Then you had people concerned about gaming and PC, PC slowing down. Um, and so last October, the, the semiconductor market overall, even AI market, had been uh, the valuations had really dropped dramatically. And now they're starting to pick back up. Um, so kind of a year-over-year basis, it looks a little less uh, run-up-y, if you will, rather than the dramatic drop-off there. But uh, the rest of the AI ecosystem, a lot of these companies are definitely not trading anywhere near NVIDIA's levels. And, um, you know, you look at, you know, the Think Index, for example, where we track uh, infrastructure and applications, is trading more along the lines of 6.5x forward EV sales and 40x uh, price-to-earnings on a forward-looking basis. So uh, that's a pretty dramatic step-up, and we think a lot of these other players are either smaller and not getting the same attention. Of course, you're watching this dramatic run-up with NVIDIA, yes. but um, some of them will also, um, maybe they'll appreciate and see these earnings trickle in over time, right? So you've got, you know, cloud, infrastructure, edge, uh, automotive, all areas are going to benefit as more people deploy and utilize AI, not just in training, but in practice. Uh, kind of as what Ian was saying was like having these edge compute on device with computer vision, uh, being able to do it not just in the cloud like we're doing right now through Azure AI Cloud, which will continue to be yes. valuable and continue to be deployed, but it's going to saturate and deploy and, and empower 
um, many other different parts of the ecosystem, not just, you know, NVIDIA and the chips. Like, it needs other players to survive. It's not a standalone uh, single-unit player in the economy. And an economy where it is going to take even more percentage of GDP and potentially grow GDP. Uh, there could be deflationary pressure in some areas, but uh, those are some of the areas. That's kind of how we're thinking about it here at RoboGlobal. Let's let's bring up that terminal chart showing um, NVIDIA's market cap for just a second. You look at the spike on the right-hand side of the screen. That That is showing that outlook they gave, basically growth which was 50% above what analysts were expecting. What What's the story here, Zeno? What did you learn from NVIDIA's outlook about the demand right now for its products? I mean, it's really not surprising. Uh, we, we've been expecting uh, more demand and more interest to happen for a while. It was more of when the demand curve would shift over and uh, what, what catalyst it would take, uh, whether it was uh, you know, autonomous vehicles. But in this case, it was uh, getting AI out of kind of inter- super enterprise research areas, but actually into the hands of people where they're actually thinking, business leaders are thinking, governments are thinking, hey, this is real and we need to figure out how to use this across not, you know, every facet of society. You know, healthcare in the U.S. is very expensive. You know, the U.S. is thinking, how can we deploy AI to improve healthcare outcomes, reduce, uh, you know, Medicare fraud, and just kind of all these different areas where you're seeing um, issues, this can be used to help solve and improve the the processes and outcomes uh, across yeah. all these different areas. What's interesting is there's one player who thought and realized that NVIDIA was cool before many others, was buying it in 2014 and has missed this rally, and it's Kathy Wood, because she's got some concerns about the business, about competition, about valuation. Just have a listen to see what she said to us on Friday. NVIDIA has become a check-the-box stock. That's why the valuation is where it is. Um, uh, But we are looking for those plays uh, that have not only the the vision from management team point of view and broad distribution, but also proprietary data and AI expertise. So, you know, where are you looking for opportunities? Who else can you buy in at, at a better valuation than is going to ride this AI wave? It's a great question. Um, you know, I agree and disagree with their approach and her approach. Uh, in one hand, yes, data and software plays are great. They are amazing. It's not just NVIDIA. I already mentioned NVIDIA is not just hardware anymore. Uh, but there's lots of players, um, you know, don't, don't really necessarily like to dive into specific names. But if you look at companies like Samsara, they're helping digitize and analyze real-world analytics of vehicles and fleets around the world uh, for utilities, for you know, mining, like many different subsectors. So there's companies like that. Uh, you know, there, there are other semiconductor companies like Global Unichip, which is, uh, you know, partially owned by uh, Taiwan Semiconductor. Uh, they're trading, you know, more like 40x, I think, or 50x uh, for PE. Um, so, and, and their ASICs are being used in AI. Uh, so I, I think uh, there's more picks and shovels to the ecosystem than, than software. Uh, also, there's cybersecurity. There's cloud and networking compute, companies like Arista and Pure Storage, where, you know, demand and utilization and AI will require more storage, uh, both in the cloud and, and you know, on, on-premise, on on-device, um, especially as we get more in the multimodal AI, which is not yes. just text, but video. Um, well, that's going to require a lot more storage. Um, and, you know, something like companies like Pure Storage haven't really taken off. In fact, you know, they've seen kind of like a temporary pain point, but... You know, it's hard to imagine that with this uptick in demand, uh, 
that's going to kind of tail along with it and, and grow uh, with the rising tide. Yes, Zeno Mercer, RoboGlobo, someone that lives and breathes artificial intelligence and does so with a smile on their face. Caroline, thank you for your time, Zeno. The company that gets a person in an autonomous vehicle from point A to point B as quickly as and safely as possible is probably going to get the lion's share of the market. And that company will, in the United States, uh, we believe, be Tesla. That was a part of our interview of Kathy Wood discussing Tesla and sticking with the EV maker. Elon Musk is in China for the first time since the pandemic, where he met with the nation's foreign minister and emphasized the importance of maintaining ties with China. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Global Autos editor, Craig Trudell, for more. This was a meeting with, with Chingang. What were the key kind of messages that came out of Elon Musk's visit to Beijing? Yeah, I think uh, per your intro, I mean, that was one of the things that, that was uh, sort of, you know, universal in this readout uh, from, from both sides, right? An emphasis on the need for U.S.-China collaboration. And it's, it's sort of no wonder that that's a, a major point of emphasis uh, on the part of the foreign ministry, given what's been happening with uh, chips, what's been happening with electric vehicle batteries. You've had uh, Joe Biden and other leaders, you know, really make a, a concerted effort to wean the global auto industry off of the the reliance on China for for batteries which you know the the country just absolutely dominates supply of, of not only bat and uh, battery cells but the raw materials uh, and also chips right uh, a big emphasis on uh, you know building up semiconductor supply outside of, of uh, Asia and and uh, whether it's in the US or Germany and some real challenges on the part of uh, whether Biden or, or Olaf Scholz uh, in terms of getting companies to sort of agree to this uh, this change in approach. Well, precisely because, well, he's not alone, Elon Musk. You've had the Mercedes CEO. We've just heard from Mary Barra of GM. You've heard from other companies saying these ties need to remain despite leadership from a government perspective thinking otherwise. Yeah, and I, I think there is some sort of realism on the part of these government leaders of talking about uh, de-risking as opposed to decoupling. And I think there is going to be that sort of, you know, debate as to whether or not it is really realistic to completely decouple uh, U.S. from China or Germany from China. And if you ask, uh, you know, the, the CEO of Mercedes-Benz, he says it's it's not right. realistic, right? So uh, whether or not, uh, you know, it's, it's possible to really cut uh, these companies off from this market that's been a, a huge source of profits for them, uh, a huge source of exports if you're, if you're Tesla. Uh, you know, this after all was supposed to be a, a plant in, in Shanghai that was going to be for the domestic market, but it's really turned into this massive export base for Tesla to where last year, you know, more than half of the cars they produce globally came out of that plant in Shanghai. Craig, on Kathy Wood's point on autonomy, I believe a Bloomberg source has told us that uh, Elon Musk may meet with Chinese Premier Li Xiang on autonomous driving in particular. 
Yeah, I, I think that's going to be really interesting to watch play out because we've seen recently Tesla have to do a, a recall uh, that they were able to address uh, via an, an over-the-air software update in China. There's obviously a lot of, of uh, attention anytime Teslas get into any sort of safety issues in China. And to the extent that we start to see some of the same things that have happened in the U.S. over the years of, of crashes, some of them fatal, involving autopilot or full self-driving, you know, to this point, that's really been sort of isolated to North America. And, you know, Elon Musk, we know, really wants to sort of, you know, make that uh, a more global uh, technology that, that Tesla is able to deploy. And to the extent that, you know, the yeah. government is willing to go along with that is a, a big question, I think, going forward. Craig Trudell, thanks for keeping it global for us and all things Elon Musk. We thank you. Meanwhile, coming up, we're talking China some more. Liftoff from China, how the country is narrowing the gap in a head-to-head -head space race with the United States with its most recent launch. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Time for Talking Tech. First up, China making good on its goal for more prominence in the global space race, launching the Shenzhou 16 mission from a military-controlled space center on Tuesday morning. The Shenzhou 16 mission is sending three astronauts to the Chinese space station, including the first civilian, a professor at Beijing-based Beihang University. It's part of Beijing's plan to have a continuous presence at its space station. 
The Chinese space station is just one of several achievements that China has made in recent years as it tries to catch up to the U.S. in space. China has also landed a craft on the far side of the moon, the only country that's managed to do that. The next big project, sending Chinese astronauts to the moon. A Chinese space agency official on Monday said the goal is to land on the moon with a crewed mission by 2030. The U.S. is also working to send astronauts back to the moon, part of its Artemis program. The U.S. is so far more successful than China in winning international support for its space plans, with two dozen countries supporting the Artemis Accords, a Washington-backed agreement to regulate activity on the moon and elsewhere in space. China is seeking more space allies, and offering more access to things like the Shenzhou 16 launch could help by showing Chinese confidence in its space capabilities. China says it plans to send its astronauts to the moon by 2030. And Gitai is expanding its presence in the U.S. as it seeks to build a cheaper and less risky robot workforce for space missions. Fresh off raising $30 million in funding, the Tokyo-based startup told Bloomberg TV it will use the funds to recruit engineers and further develop its robots. Gitai's robotic arms and rovers can remotely perform routine construction work, ranging from solar panel installation to welding. Plus, Noise, the Indian-based maker of smartwatches and other gadgets, is in talks for its first ever fundraising round. Sources say the noise is hoping to raise 40 to 50 million dollars to gain dominance in India's fast-growing wearables market. Last year, noise accounted for more than half of the sales in the market, which grew 47% overall thanks to its more affordable models. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. We're going to check in on these markets, Carol. I think some of the enthusiasm earlier in the session that was fueled by AI has kind of worn off a little bit. You look at the S&P 500, we're kind of flat uh, in that main gauge of, of U.S. equities. But outperformance in tech, so you look at the Nasdaq 100 up six tenths of one percent. Some of the big movers to the upside are AI related. We'll get into that in just a second. On the U.S. 10-year yield, you see kind of a pullback in yields, 3.7 percent on the 10-year Treasury. Some of that around hopes that we will find resolution in the U.S. De- debt ceiling negotiations, and also a quick look at Bitcoin that's trading at around 27,700 U.S. We're basically back to where we were at the end of March. We kind of traded in this range of between 26,000 and 30,000 US dollars over the last two to three months or so. In terms of single names, there is really only one story out there, which is NVIDIA hitting a $1 trillion market cap, the first chip maker to do so. Only nine stocks have ever hit that milestone. You see it up 3.5% moving to the upside. Interesting to contrast with Alphabet, the parent company of Google, off by four tenths of 1%. It had been down much more significantly earlier in the session. This is another name that if you actually bring up a longer term chart, it has seen a run up in its shares fueled by uh, its announcements, particularly in the field of AI. I'm thinking back to when I was at Google I.O. and what they're doing in some of the other mediums beyond text, like uh, photo images, video as well. So that seems to be some selling in inverse to what we're seeing in NVIDIA, Cara. Well, great setup because we want to stick with exactly the Alphabet family right now. Turn to, well, YouTube. You know it, you use it. It's got multiple platforms in the streaming era. And look, they're going to be disrupted and also embrace the world of artificial intelligence. We're pleased to be discussing more of this with Laurie Conkling, which is YouTube's global head of TV, film, sports, partnerships. Wonderful to have you here in the studio in New York. Thanks Thank for coming. Thank you. Very nice to be here. Laurie, 
How much are you having this conversation with the media partners that you work with, with those within YouTube thinking, how can you harness artificial intelligence right now to give us the content we want? So we are having many conversations, as you would imagine, around AI and how it can be applied in the media space and in the sports world. We at YouTube have been using it for years in terms of matching content and recommending content, uh, looking at our roadmap and how we really um, create that personalization. Mm -hmm. Our content partners have their own plans and we collaborate with them. Obviously, all of us are being you know, very uh, responsible in our approach, um, but we're excited about the potential opportunities. And, and sharing there, because you are, as you say, in co constant conversation with the media partners, would you ever give data to them? How do you think about the relationship and how it flourishes, both of you at the same time? So Google obviously has very uh, strict privacy policies, and we are always adhering to those. They're negotiated as part of our contracts. Uh, and so we're sensitive to that, but we're also very you know, open to optimizing experiences within those um, parameters. Laurie, good afternoon to you. Good morning from San Francisco. When I think about YouTube, I think about content creators and bringing their content to the platform. But increasingly, the questions we're getting asked from our audience on the show is what YouTube's going to use in the field of generative AI, text to images. Is that something that YouTube's working on? So again, we're just exploring many different things. Uh, we see a lot of potential. Uh, we see potential with our own company. We see potential with our partners. And obviously, YouTube is a composition of creator content, media content, music content, sports content. Um, so there are many different uh, partners that have ideas around it. Uh, and again, it's ultimately all about the consumer and how we use technology in many different ways um, to optimize the experience every time they come to YouTube. Laurie, we, we always want to give our audience the opportunity to ask questions. So when I tweeted that you were coming on the show, there was a lot of interest from Twitter users about uh, the recommendation engine. And when you think about sports highlights, live events, short form video, what are you guys doing around the recommendation engine driven by AI? So a lot of what we do uh, for our viewers is make sure that every time they come to YouTube, the format of content that they're interested in watching, as well as the business model that they'd like to consume that content under is available on our platform. So as has been mentioned, we, had, we have ad-supported video on demand, long form, short form, shorts. We have you know, transactional VOD, we have pay television, we have primetime channels, which we launched last year, subscription, ad-supported. So it's really about creating that ecosystem where every time they come, they find what they want. And of course, there's an algorithm that as people continue to visit frequently, that algorithm is able to know what they would be likely interested in watching, and that content will be served up. I mean, Lauren, that's why you're growing. Well, most live TV isn't growing. You've been, Moffat Nathanson, I think, shown in a light that YouTube is. I'm interested in the reason also you're growing is the content you're serving, NFL, NFL Sunday Ticket in particular. How are you starting to lure in those people who want to be watching those sorts of games from DirecTV? Is it, is it about the right price point? How are you deciding where you tackle those people for that content? So many of those people have already been watching highlights and clips of the NFL on YouTube on our ad-supported platform. What we're doing for the first time ever is offering Sunday Ticket under two different uh, 
uh, platform. So on YouTube Main, you can buy it through primetime channels, and you can also buy it through uh, YouTube TV as an add-on. And under DirecTV's model, you had to be a DirecTV subscriber in order to purchase Sunday Ticket. You do not have to be a YouTube TV subscriber in order to purchase Sunday Ticket from YouTube. You can do it off of YouTube Main. And what about the... Well, but people want to get inside information on their favorite players, on basically the content creators that are out there surrounding NFL. How do you think the world of influencers is going to meet suddenly the world of live TV in the way that you can probably bundle it? So this is one of the areas we're most excited about because we recognize that creators are a really, really interesting way to present sports content, TV film content. And in fact, with Sunday Ticket and with the NFL, we've seen a great opportunity to integrate. So at the NFL draft, we had 32 creators there. And Dude Perfect actually announced one of the draft picks, um, which was very well received. Our audience um, skews younger than other pay TV platforms. And, and that younger audience watches creators in addition to watching TV, film, and sports content. So it's an integration that they embrace. And it's a way for us to really bring all of the power of YouTube together. Laurie, our colleagues at Bloomberg News reporting over the weekend that Apple, Netflix are looking at the long term of NBA rights. And one of the things they reported is that Fox, for example, if they entered the fray, could be interested in offering uh, a stream through someone else's platform. How does YouTube think about the NBA going forward? So we are very, very, very strong partners uh, with the NBA, again, on uh, platforms such as AVOD, where we have clips and highlights, but also on YouTube TV, where we carry all of the networks that currently have the rights for the NBA. Um, we carry NBA League Pass on primetime channels. We were the first streaming service to offer WNBA League Pass um, and offer that on a uh, subscription basis to consumers. So we have that partnership in place. Uh, you know, obviously we are looking to uh, sports as, as we just discussed with NFL Sunday Ticket as an opportunity to continue to deliver uh, rights and games to our viewers who are very, very sports-centered, uh, but at the same time, there's nothing you know, to announce in regards to uh, rights discussions with the NBA, but we do value their partnership and we'll continue to uh, keep our sports fans top of mind. Those media partners that you now work with, you've worked for in your previous lives. You were with the Disney, you were with A&E. I'm also noticing that you were NBC Universal. What's interesting is Recently, a key executive from NBC Universal has moved across to go and had Twitter. Who do you see as your competition? You must have worked with Linda at some point. How do you see sort of this ending up? Who will win out or indeed can everyone from an offering of sports, of content and the way that we want to be consuming it? So basically, I think there's room for many platforms. And uh, I did work with Linda and obviously, um, you know, she has moved to Twitter and, and there's value in the Twitter platform, there's value in the YouTube platform, there's value in Netflix and Disney Plus and all of these services. What I really like about YouTube is that we distribute uh, many of these services and we make it easier for consumers to find them and to transact on them. And so I think people are very interested 
in different types of content under different business models. And we always put the customer at the center of the equation. And it goes back to what I said earlier. If they come to YouTube and they want to watch any of that content you just mentioned from Disney or NBC Universal um, on an ad supported basis, we have that. If they want to subscribe to a director consumer channel, we have that. If they want to watch a linear TV channel, we have that. Uh, and so that is the value we bring to the media space that does have a lot of players uh, who we consider to be great partners. You want five million at least eyeballs as well, so that's one to watch. We thank you, of course. Ed, you want to give a piece of thanks as well? Yeah, Laurie Conkling, YouTube Global Head of TV, Film and Sports Partnership. Also note, Carol, like how many live events are being hosted on YouTube as well? Mm-hmm. You think about earnings calls right through to the events that Tesla and Elon Musk are holding, ironically, now that they own Twitter. Very interesting. Now, coming up, AI's impact on the fintech space. We'll discuss all that and more with Cambrian Ventures' Rex Salisbury. That's next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Now, in today's VC Spotlight, we take a look at the world of fintech. Well, just kidding. I mean, probably artificial intelligence. But we welcome <laughs> Rex Salisbury, general partner and founder of Cambrian Ventures, backing fintech founders at the angel pre-seed and seed levels, $20 million in assets under management. Rex, also a founding member of Andreessen Horowitz A16's own fintech team back in the day. I said just kidding. But actually, whether you're in fintech or not, AI is touching everything and anything right now. 
how, how's it impacting the world that you operate in? Absolutely. Uh, AI is definitely a big trend going on in financial services right now. But I want to talk about kind of separating the hype uh, and the reality. Right. I like to think about AI and financial services as a platform shift. So we are now, call it 18 years into the transformation that cloud has had in technology more broadly. Cloud computing, AWS 2005, they launched a simple storage solution, S3, their very first cloud platform. Financial services, very slow to adopt cloud technology, right? Last year, JP Morgan announced their very first cloud computing partnership with Thought Machine, a London-based company. So that is to say, we will see a lot of adoption of um, AI within financial services, but it may take well, may take some We look time. at some of your portfolio companies, right? Some are consumer wallets, some are, are B2B lending uh, platforms. What is it that AI is doing that changes their offering or the value proposition from your perspective? Yeah, to put it simply, it lets them build better software more quickly with fewer resources. A lot like cloud did. With cloud computing, you didn't have to own the servers anymore. You could get a product into market more quickly. Uh, now with AI, you can use very basic tools like GitHub's Copilot to write, uh, write code more quickly. You can also use it to do process-heavy workflows, which for anyone who's closed a mortgage or done anything else in finance knows there are a lot of very heavy um, process flows within financial services. And having these new AI tools lets you write more code more quickly to do more things at lower cost. Will it therefore be more democratizing from where these founders are coming from? Rex, where do you look? Is it purely US? Is it purely West Coast? Are you looking internationally? So I focus on just the US, and I specialize particularly in B2B or business-to-business fintech, but fintech is very much a global phenomenon, and I think there is a tremendous amount of exciting opportunity for investors globally. As a solo GP, I tend to play towards my strengths, and I think the US also has a lot of opportunity remaining. We're one of the largest unified markets um, with a really rich venture capital ecosystem. The Bay Area in particular has an incredibly deep set of networks uh, and some of the best founders in the country, I think, tend to be out here, although I have back founders everywhere. So fintech, very much a global phenomenon, but I am personally focused on backing the best uh, U.S. companies. It's interesting, Rex, your model is basically taking checks from previous fintech founders, putting it into an overall fund to then go and seed new ideas. How much more jostling is there in the very early stage, the seed, the, the very early checks being written at the moment? Because... People are more worried about writing larger checks in this economic environment. Uh, that, that's right, Caroline. I do, I do focus on the pre-seed and seed now. Um, that's a stage that I'm very excited about because I've built out networks over decades. And you're right, we do have a bunch of founders who are investors or limited partners in the fund. My goal is to provide the founders I support with access from the best networks in fintech. So we have founders from places like Plaid, Betterment, SoFi, and other places. Sometimes they come along as angel investors um, in the deals I'm investing in. Often they end up being advisors or just episodically engaged provide uh, channel partnership, connectivity, et cetera. One of the cool things about the fintech ecosystem is just how integrated and networked it is. Because it's highly regulated, you often need to have partners who are doing various aspects of the complete solution you're building out. So having access to great founders is one of the key differentiators that I bring and then tends to benefit the, the portfolio companies. You had a question, too, about the extent to which it's competitive. So a lot of the multi-stage firms have pulled right. back a little bit from the pre-seed and seed. I tend to focus very early on. And I am intentionally a non-lead investor and try to be very collaborative with other um, funds that may lead pre-seed or seed rounds. Rex, how much of a tailwind remains from SVB's collapse for fintech? Yeah, so 
I think for a certain growth stage, fintech companies, especially business banks, it's been a huge tailwind. If you look at deposit inflows to companies like Roe and Mercury, Mercury alone saw about $2 billion of deposit inflows just a few weeks after the collapse of SVB. For those of you who aren't familiar with SVB or their business banking footprint, they had about an 80% market share of tech-enabled uh, or tech startups. Now they pulled out Mercury, which has about 100,000 customers. Most of their companies are also in the tech ecosystem, although they also support e-commerce to other places. Now the biggest incumbent is out, and Mercury, therefore, is a great place for founders to go to to get access to great business banking services. Cambria Ventures GP and founder, we thank you. Rex Salisbury. Oh, it's time now for what's going viral. Guess what? Artificial intelligence is. But it's the risks, potentially. And this is being pointed out as potentially a risk of extinction. It's not coming from a conspiracy theorist. That's a warning from a group of industry leaders from OpenAI, Google DeepMind, other AI labs. Joining us now to weigh in on these concerns, if they should be the ones in the near term or not, Dr. Sasha Nuccioni research scientist at Hugging Face, which did not sign this latest letter coming from CASE, the Center for AI Safety. What do you make of these worries about longer-term extinction vis-a-vis some of the realities of AI right here, right now? I think it's a way of controlling the narrative. So we should be talking about things like legislation, things like the risks of bias, uh, the ways in which AI is being used maybe in ways that isn't very isn't very good for society at large, but instead we're focusing on on these hypothetical risks. And um, I think the comparison, especially to pandemics, provokes a really visceral reaction. So people really, you know, gets them in the gut when you when you compare things to to COVID. And so we can talk about that instead and and focus on that instead of of thinking about the things that are impacting our daily lives. S- Sasha, when you look at the list of signatories to this latest letter or statement on AI risks. What do you think is their motivation for doing this? I personally see it a bit as a, as a magic trick, as, a, as misdirection, right? Um, I, I care very, very strongly about, for example, uh, data consent, for example, disclosing data sources, disclosing, disclosing transparency and model documentation. And instead of focusing on that, we're being directed towards um, these unsolvable risks, right? Because what can we really do if, if AI is a, is a global threat to humanity? What does that really mean? And uh, there was already, already a previous open letter about stopping all AI research for six months, uh, which was equally um, unrealistic, I would say. And so I think that these companies are, are kind of stalling are stalling real regulation, are stalling real measures in AI deployment and limiting how AI is deployed in society. So it's a, it's a bit of a, yeah, it's a bit of a hat trick. You wrote a great op-ed in Wired back when that first letter by a different organization was put out and you called the call to halt dangerous AI research ignores the simple truth. Ultimately, that simple truth being that, you know, that's, you can't just halt it, but also the fact that you need to improve transparency in the here and now, accountability in the here and now, and developing guidelines in the here and now. Is anyone doing that? And are you leading it? How do you see real impact being made in how AI is disrupting our life? There's definitely a lot of people doing impactful work. Um, as I... 
As I looked at the list this morning, I realized that none of them signed this letter. So the people working on AI ethics, uh, on making sure that you know predictive policing get, doesn't get deployed uh, in across the world, things like that. They, people are, are doing very impactful work in this field, and um, they don't necessarily get their say in things, right? For example, when when the U.S. Senate um, asks for experts in uh, in AI, they ask for, uh, for example, Sam Altman from OpenAI, who has a vested interest in AI succeeding, right? And so we're really seeing um, a select group of people controlling the narrative and, and leading it towards this kind of um, existential risk, future risk, hypothetical risk, and the people calling upon the dangers of AI now and uh, regulating AI and documenting and you know transparency. They're not they're not being um, given a seat at the table in, in in many in many places. You know, I think that there are those out there that say, I've seen the Terminator films, and for me, that's the embodiment of the potential risk. But I think your point, Sasha, is that there are many more near-term risks. Hugging face, research scientist, Sasha Lucioni. Thank you. Caro, we're back us. together, but that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. And what a fascinating conversation to end it on, Ed. And look, these AI conversations keep coming up. The short-term impact, the longer-term, the investing implications, the way it's upending business models. Check it out on our podcast from New York, from San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.